This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, February 19th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. The case of Tims v. Indiana established that the excessive fines clause of the Eighth Amendment applies to states. That is, state governments now must consider the proportionality of their takings. But for Tyson Timms, who had his expensive truck stolen by Indiana cops over a matter of drugs nearly a decade ago, that may be cold comfort. The state is continuing to pursue its case. Sam Gedge of the Institute for Justice discusses how Tyson Timms and Indiana are still fighting. Let me crow about the Institute for Justice briefly and say that a conversation I was having uh, some years ago with Dan Albin, an att- uh, one of your fellow attorneys at the Institute for Justice, and uh, he said one of the things that IJ has discovered is that in many cases, the government really doesn't care that much about winning. And uh, while uh, government having sort of a blasé attitude about things, it can mean very bad things for justice. Um, it at least provides this a, a potentially incredible avenue for challenging that injustice. And it seems that the Mr. Tim's case is a pretty clear-cut example of that. So walk us through uh, Mr. Tim's experience with the government of Indiana. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the most amazing part of Tyson's case so far is just how long it's been going on. Uh, the state of Indiana has been trying desperately to forfeit his Land Rover for uh, just under eight years now. Um, so I won't I won't walk through all of those eight years, but basically Tyson's fought this case up a, for every level of the American judicial system. Uh, we represented him at the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, we won there on an important threshold issue of whether you know the Eighth Amendment successive fines clause applies at all to the states. Uh, that was two years ago now, and the state of Indiana has spent the past two years continuing to fight over whether it's okay for them to take uh, a low-income addict's most valuable asset. And to be clear, the Supreme Court said, yes, the uh, excessive fines clause does, in fact, apply to states. That's exactly right. And it's kind of surprising that, you know, it took until, uh, or, you know, kind of early in the 21st century for the court to ever actually address that question squarely. But yeah, the Supreme Court said, of course, this part of the Bill of Rights applies to the states, just like it applies to the feds. And really the issue over the past two years since then has been, okay, we know that the excessive fines clause applies to the state of Indiana, but the state of Indiana has desperately been arguing that taking you know, this man's car doesn't violate the excessive fines Okay. Uh, and so what are, what have the, what's the top cop in Indiana say about that? Well, so we've been dealing with the, the Indiana Solicitor General for the past couple of years, and the, the, the government's arguments have just been consistently very radical and extreme uh, because their top line argument now has been that, okay, we accept now that the excessive fines clause regulates us, it applies to us, but you know there should basically be no requirement that forfeitures be proportional. So we should be able to you know forfeit a Bugatti, a $500,000 car for an offense as trivial as speeding. Uh, it doesn't matter if there's a mismatch between crime and punishment. Basically, we should get a blank check. Well, that would seem to disagree somewhat sharply with the holding of the Supreme Court. Am I, am I misunderstanding something about what the Supreme Court said? No, I mean, it's certainly in tension with what the U.S. Supreme Court has said, um, right? So there's no question that the excessive fines clause now applies to the states, and the state of Indiana has basically um, taken the position that they're going to try to write the excessive fines clause out of the Bill of Rights altogether by saying that, you know, it lets them take everything belonging to anyone who has committed a crime. 
Um, so we were obviously pushing back pretty firmly on that and happily. Um, when we were back in front of the Indiana Supreme Court a couple of years ago, a majority of that court roundly rejected that argument. Uh, but undeterred, the, the state government has continued to press it. If I understand what excessive means, uh, especially in the in the context of a government's seizing property, excessive means too much, and too much given what is the question, and too much given the crime seems like the obvious answer. You would think so. And um, it is obvious to most courts. So a supermajority of federal courts of appeals have said exactly what you just said. Um, the Indiana Supreme Court has said what you just said. Lots of other state courts have said that. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court has even said that in a closely related context. So, you know, the attorney general's office in Indiana really stands alone in taking this kind of blank check approach to what they can forfeit under their state's civil forfeiture. And it just strikes me that they don't they don't care about winning or losing here. Like they're just going to fight because they have the power to tax people <laughs> and take money and continue fighting. Is that what's going on here? You know, I don't know. I, I don't know what their motives are, but it, but it is surprising that they've kind of maintained this eight-year forfeiture campaign. I, I don't know of any other forfeiture case that has gone on this long, you know, anywhere in the nation. Uh, maybe there are some, but I, I'm not familiar with it. Um, but I think that, you know, for whatever reason, the state of Indiana uh, really doesn't want to lose even a little bit of its power to take people's property using civil forfeiture. And in that regard, their position is not surprising, right? Because forfeiture is big business. Uh, it's profitable. So it makes sense in a way that the government would resist so fiercely, even, you know, a modest restriction on their ability to take as much as they can get. I'm going to ask you a question that you may not have the answer to, uh, but Mr. Timms bought this car eight years ago uh, from the proceeds of his father's estate. Is that correct? Okay. Correct. Okay. So uh, with that as the background, he bought a new car that was, as far as we know, unrelated to uh, any crimes he may have committed um, while uh, an addict. And eight years have gone by. That vehicle has depreciated somewhat. What is What might be Indiana's obligation to him for the several years uh, that he, I mean, he did get the car back at a certain point, but uh, for the years that he was without the use and benefit of that vehicle, uh, what is the, what is the state of, what do you think the state of Indiana owes him? Well, I think morally they owe him a lot. Um, you're right. I mean, they, they held onto the car for something like five or six years. They only returned it to him last May when we won for a second time at the trial court. Um, and so they're, you know, Basically, you know, he, he's in a sense been fined already, even if he ends up winning the case and the state eventually gives up, right? He's lost five or six years worth of value in his car. Um, legally, I honestly don't know what the recourse is. Um, there, there might be some creative avenue, um, but pretty much the government, as, as you know, gets a free hand to do a lot of terrible things without ever really having to be accountable for it or to compensate people for the damage that the government causes. And I would not be surprised if this is going to end up being one of those instances. So sad. What are the other avenues that uh, this Supreme Court decision relating to excessive fines, what does that open up in terms of fighting government overreach when it comes to leveling fines or seizures? 
Yeah, so I, I think that the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in this case really kind of raised awareness about the excessive fines clause more generally, even though the court's actual holding was was fairly narrow, right? Just that just part of the Bill of Rights applies to the states, just like the First Amendment does, just like the Second Amendment does. Um, it really seemed to have reinvigorated people's interest in this provision of the Bill of Rights as a, as a backstop and a bulwark against you know, some of the most uh, offensive economic sanctions. So you know, you're seeing this issue come up in a lot of cases. Um, the Washington Supreme Court, for example, um, recently accepted review on an excessive fines clause case. Um, we saw it at the Colorado Supreme Court a year or two ago. Um, and you know, lots of really good lawyers are starting to um, you know, develop the case law in this area to ensure that there are meaningful protections for people. So putting meat on the bones of that decision, in a sense, is important, and a lot of state courts are are doing it. Um, what does what is not excessive? I mean, how, how is there is there a framework that we ought to be thinking about in terms of what isn't excessive? Yeah, so I mean, like by its nature, it's kind of a, a pretty fact-intensive inquiry and requires kind of looking at the totality of the circumstances, basically doing the opposite of what the Indiana government wants courts to do. Um, but, you know, there are certainly a few kind of touchstones that we can look to. You know, we can look at the seriousness of the underlying crime. We can, you know, look at how a forfeiture or a fine, like how much it is, and also how it will affect uh, the property owner. And kind of one of the really cutting-edge issues when it comes to, you know, excessive fines plus cases is the extent to which a property owner's economic circumstances should bear on the excessiveness analysis. The thinking being that, well, okay, if you forfeit Bill Gates's car, you know, the economic impact of that forfeiture is going to be a lot different uh, than if you forfeit Tyson Timms's car when that, that's his most valuable asset. Um, so the Indiana Supreme Court, for example, a couple of years ago in, in this seemingly endless case, um, did say that, you know, a defendant's economic circumstances should factor into the analysis. And that's something that we're seeing other courts across the nation you know, wrestle with as well. To the extent that uh, what Indiana is asking for is intention with uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, where do you expect this to go? I know what you hope. What do you expect? Well, you know, it really depends on what the Indiana court, uh, the Indiana Supreme Court does now. This is the the third time that the Indiana Supreme Court has heard Tyson's case. We just had an argument last week. Um, I, I think if the, the state of Indiana loses again, uh, that they have certainly suggested that they will be asking the U.S. Supreme Court to take the case and adopt their really aggressive view of what government should be allowed to do. Um, and we'll just have to wait and see. Sam Gedge is an attorney at the Institute for Justice. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.